God. Well, hey, uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome into our worship service wherever you are, however you may be tuning in. Just want to say I'm so glad that you're with us. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors at FBC, and I'm glad you're a part of our, again, Sunday morning worship service. We've been taking some time this summer to walk through the book of Psalms. Our uh, sermon series has been called Learning to Pray, where we're taking one psalm from the Old Testament each week and walking through it. And uh, again, many of the psalms are prayers, are songs. And what's so great about them is they often give us language uh, to learn how to pray. Sometimes we don't know how to express ourselves to God or what to say in prayer, but the psalms can give us words, can put language to many of the things that we feel and teach us how to interact with God and come before Him in prayer. So that's what uh, the journey that we've been on. I'm glad that you're with us this morning as we're going to look at Psalm 19. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalm 19. And would you join me uh, just in a brief word of prayer? Father, we, we love you and we thank you for the gift of uh, time together and time in your word. Uh, would you teach us? Would you speak to us? Would you uh, change us. Uh, do your work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we don't pray more often is that we don't know the one we're praying to. I referenced this quote last week from a modern author, Anne Lamont, who was writing a book on prayer, and she said this. She said, Let's not get bogged down on whom or what we pray to. And I thought that that did a great job of capturing a modern spiritual sentiment. Like, hey, be spiritual, uh, pray, connect, reach out to something out there in, in the universe uh, that's bigger than you, but don't worry so much about uh, whom or what it is that you are trying to connect with. Don't worry so much about the specifics. I think, again, maybe some of us listening to this or definitely people in our communities and our world would, would resonate with that sentiment. But I want to push back on that idea and challenge that and say, you know, what if it actually does matter whom we're praying to? What if it does matter that we're specific about whom we're talking to, because in life and in prayer, it matters who we're speaking to, right? How you talk to your mom is different than how you talk to your friends, or how you talk to your boss is different from how you talk to your children. Actually, this week we were going to take Zoe out to a special treat to get some Jamba Juice, and we told her, hey, we're going to do this special thing. And that morning when we were getting ready to go, she was just acting out like crazy, not listening, disobeying left and right. And so we warned her and warned her and said, hey, hey, if you keep this up, if you don't listen to us right now, we're not going to be able to take you to Jamba Juice because there's going to be some consequences for, for what you're doing. She kept going, she kept going, and eventually said, okay, we're not going to Jamba Juice. You've crossed a line. Now, I wouldn't say that same thing to Pastor Kyle, for example. Like, Kyle... Sorry, I'm not going to take you to get your treat at 
Jamba Juice. Why? Because it's a different relationship there. And so uh, when we're talking to someone, it matters who that person is. That's going to dictate the way we engage with them and interact with them. And I think intuitively we know this, right? If if you're married, you know that you will say things to your spouse or talk with your spouse in a way uh, that that you wouldn't talk with your parents or you wouldn't say certain things to your parents or to your in-laws. Intuitively, uh, we know this, but sometimes we don't carry that logic over into our prayer life or into how we think or interact uh, with God. But friends, if we don't know the one we are praying to, we will be confused about prayer from the start. The good news is that Psalm 19, thankfully, uh, has a lot to say about who God is and how he has made himself known. So would you look at Psalm 19, uh, verse 1 with me? It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So you notice Psalm 19 is going to tell us plenty about what God is like as we go, but it also points to how we know what God is like. What is it that informs our view of God, our understanding of God? Well, King David, who's the author of this psalm, starts by pointing us to what? To the created world, right? Look at verse 1. What is it that declares the glory of God? What is it that proclaims the work of His hands? Well, it says, it's the heavens. It's the skies above. In other words, the moon and the stars, or verses 5 through 6, have this kind of extended metaphor talking about the sun. It's the created world, the heavens and the stars and the skies that proclaim who God is. And you almost picture David kind of looking up at the night sky in awe as he's writing this. I mean, think about those times that you've gone camping or you've been outside at night and you can look up and you're able to see with with greater clarity the stars, the incredible vast expanse of the universe that's seemingly infinite and it gives you the sense of awe and wonder. So here in Psalm 19 verse 1, David says, it's the heavens that declare the glory of God. Glory, more roughly translated, could speak of something that's heavy, heaviness or weightiness or importance. And notice the, the wordplay going on here in the text. It's actually really interesting. Verse 3 says what? The, the heavens, the skies, uh, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So it's saying, hey, human language is not used. They're not speaking words. Uh, the sun and the moon and the stars are silent. There's no audible human language being spoken. And yet, there's all these speaking verbs used, right? Verse 1, they do what? They declare. They proclaim. Verse 2, they pour forth 
speech, pour forth. It's like a verb that would be used to describe like a bubbling fountain or a a spring that just irrevocably coming up night after night, day after day. They they reveal, or verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So notice that. They make no sound, use no words, and yet they scream a message loud and clear to all the earth. And what is the message? The greatness and the glory of God. Why? Why is it that the heavens and the skies point us to the greatness and the glory of God? Well, verse 1, it says, it all is the work of His hands. Okay, so this is no small thing. Again, just, just take the sun. Verses, again, 5 and 6 mention uh, this extended metaphor with the sun, comparing it to a bridegroom, comparing it to an athlete, doing its thing up in the heavens. And many in the ancient world would look at the sun and deify the sun, have some version of a sun god. The sun is massive. It's over 100 times the diameter of the earth. You take uh, over 100 earths and you can line them up side by side by side by side by side, and that would get uh, to the diameter of the sun. And then if you wanted to fill the whole sun with earths, it would take 1.3 million earths to fill the sun. 1.3 million. So we think that our planet is big and massive and so beyond, almost it's hard difficult to comprehend how many people live on earth and how big our planet is. And then the sun then, 1.3 million of our planet could fit inside the sun. The sun's massive beyond imagination. And we know, scientists have discovered, that uh, the sun is not the biggest star in the universe. It's not even close. And so how amazing is it then that all of this, the stars in the sky, the sun, and everything else is the work of God's hands, as if God, in the palm of His hand, says, boom. All that? Right here, fashions it, makes it with his hands. If that's how big the sun is, how big the universe is, then how much bigger and more powerful and mighty is God? And we're really privileged, if you think about it, because people in the ancient world, they didn't have access to the same sort of information or data about the universe that that we do. They just knew, hey, the universe is big, and amazing, and so God must even uh, be even more big, <laughs> even bigger, and even more amazing, because he created it. But today, we have, again, science and exploration and data about our universe. The more we learn today, the more we can come to appreciate God's power and his glory as we see the vastness and the, and the complexity and the intricacy of the natural world. So all of this, the heavens declaring the glory of God, is what theologians refer to as general revelation. Again, say it with me if you want to remember it. General revelation. Theologian Millard Erickson explains it this way. He says, general revelation is God's communication of himself to all persons at all times and in all places. Or Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
So essentially, it's saying that God has made himself known. His his power has been uh, evident. His existence has been evident to, to all people in all places at all times. So general revelation is not saying that, hey, people know everything there is to know about God or all people everywhere know everything they need to know about God, but saying that all people everywhere know something about God. God in general has revealed his existence, his power in creation. So creation points to the creator. And again, as we've learned more about the universe, this continues to be confirmed. This continues to make sense. In fact, in the 20th century, there were several scientific discoveries that pointed to uh, the reality of an expanding universe. So they looked at the stars and the galaxies and the, the universe and saw and they found evidence that it was expanding. And it led scientists to now believe that there was a cosmic origin event. A cosmic origin event. Or to put more simply, the universe had a beginning. The universe had a point in time where it began. And logically we would go from there and say, well, you know, whatever begins to exist whatever comes into existence, had a cause. And so we would say, well, then the universe must have a cause. Again, this is scientists affirming this. Now, this is exactly what Christians believe. Now, from this point, you would have to talk further and take several more steps to get to the God of the Bible. But that small recognition is a massive step. That, hey, the universe had a beginning, that falls right in line with a Christian worldview and shows that a Christian worldview, rather than being discredited by science, is actually supported and held up by science. We have a rational, intellectual faith. So, the, the psalm continues. Look at it shift gears a bit here in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward." So you notice here a significant shift in the psalm. It's no longer talking about the heavens and the skies and the sun revealing the glory of God, but what's it talking about? Well, verse 7, the law of the Lord, a word that could be translated the, the Torah. Uh, it's a comprehensive term that could speak of God's revealed will. And throughout these verses now, again, it uses a number of different nouns to describe God's law or his, his word. It talks about his statutes, his precepts, his commands, his decrees. And so we're no longer talking about general revelation as seen in the created world, but now we're talking about what theologians would refer to as special revelation. Okay, say it with me, special revelation. Look again, Millard Erickson Put it this way, general revelation is God's communication of himself to all persons at all times and in all places. Special revelation involves God's particular communications and manifestations of himself 
to particular persons at particular times. And so notice Psalm 19 talks about both general revelation and now special revelation. And God's word, his law, his commands are examples of special revelation. And look at how David in the psalm views God's word. It's described with various adjectives and verbs. It's spoken of in terms of what it is and what it does for us. So first look at what it is, the adjectives used to describe God's law and God's word. Verse 7, it's perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord, uh, slightly variation there, is, is pure. The decrees of the Lord are firm. And then verse 10, it's more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. I mean, look, take that all together. It's perfect and trustworthy and right and radiant and pure and firm and more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. And it goes on to use a number of verbs throughout to talk about what God's law does, right? Verse 7, God's law does what? It refreshes the soul. It makes wise the simple. Verse 8, the precepts of God give joy to the heart and the commands of God give light to the eyes. And so when you take all of this into consideration, notice it's not just saying, hey, to obey God and listen to God because you have to, although that's true, but it's saying listen to God and obey His word because it's good for you. It's sweeter than honey. Gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes. God's word and His ways lead to flourishing. That's what we all want. Now, think about this. Because of uh, our love for freedom... In America, freedom is such a high value in our culture. Sometimes we will chafe at laws or commands. They'll, they'll feel sort of stifling to us. But if we pause long enough to think about this, I think we all intuitively know that boundaries are not bad. Boundaries, in fact, are Good. And we think about the famous example of a fish, right? If a fish was just to throw off all laws, all boundaries, and say, I'm going to jump out of the water and flop around on land, it would not be more free. It would die, be harmed. And so freedom within boundaries is what a fish needs. Or you think about in your backyard, if you build a fence in your backyard, it's likely not because you hate your kids want to confine them unnecessarily, but you would build a fence because you love your kids. You don't want them to wander off into neighbors' houses or to walk out into the street and get hit by a car. You want them to play and be free and enjoy themselves within healthy boundaries that are for their good. Or no one says on the freeway, you know what? These painted lines are oppressive and unnecessary and stifling my freedom. So if I want to drive across multiple lanes of traffic left and right and weave in and out, I will. Who are you to tell me that I can't drive 80 miles an hour in a school zone? If I want to drive on someone's front lawn, I will. No, none of us would think that way about the freeway or how we 
derive, we would say, no, what? Boundaries are good. Laws are good and necessary for human flourishing. And so the same is true with the word and commands of God. He gives them to us for our good. And here it says God's word is trustworthy, it's radiant, it's refreshing, gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes. And I think if we reflect on this, we've seen that this is true. When we see people obey the word of God, it is good. When we see someone choose to forgive rather than enact retribution against someone, we say that is when we see someone sacrifice, love someone in a costly way, in a sacrificial way for the good of another, we say that is good. When we see people uh, embrace honesty in the workplace and carry themselves with integrity in their business, even if it means they're going to make a little bit less money, we say that is good. When we see people live generously, when we see people tell the truth, When we see people defend the vulnerable, we say that is good, and that's beautiful, and that is uh, the way to human flourishing and the good life. And even if you're not a Christian, I would argue that you have likely been influenced and shaped by a Christian moral ethic uh, more than you realize. Because think about it, you likely embrace concepts like justice and equality, the dignity of all people, the need for the strong to protect the weak, for a society to protect and care for the vulnerable. And I'd ask you, where do those impulses or those values come from? Because we can look at history and say those aren't just intuitive, necessarily natural impulses. We look at the ancient world and it wasn't the Greeks, it wasn't the, the Romans who were championing those values. Or we can even look throughout much of the world today, and there are cultures that do not embrace, again, the concepts of justice or equality or dignity for all people or protecting the vulnerable. What we see instead is throughout history, powerful people using their power at the expense of others. We see people with power using it for their own good and often harms others. But we don't embrace that way of life. We don't acknowledge that as the good life or that as the way to human flourishing. Instead, we actually embrace an ethic that is shaped by the way of Jesus. It's marked by justice, the dignity of all people, sacrificial love, care for the vulnerable. This comes from the Word of God. And friends, I would argue that if God's Word is as good as Psalm 19 says it is, Why in the world would we neglect it? Why in the world would we open it so rarely? Why would we leave it on a shelf until maybe Sunday when maybe we'll tune in and kind of open it up and see what the preacher man has to say and read a couple verses? Why in the world would that be the only time that we engage with this incredible gift? Sunday isn't enough. We have to be people of the Word people who come to God, who are rooted and planted in his word so that we're formed and shaped and led in the way of Jesus. That's why we have our Bible reading plan that we encourage everyone at the church to be on. We're reading through the New Testament this year. Fill out the connection card and just let us know that you'd like to be a part of that if you haven't been on the reading plan. 
It's a way for us to just be a little bit each day in God's Word, letting it shape us and guide us. Because God's Word is not just an arbitrary list of rules. Reading your Bible is not just some spiritual box to check or hoop to jump through. It's, it's good for you. It leads to life and flourishing in relationship with God. Notice with me one more thing about the doctrine of revelation. God is the one doing the revealing. Right? So, so we're not talking about humans making up God or deciding what they want God to be like or just over the centuries kind of coming up with some thoughts about God. No, the doctrine of revelation means almost by definition that it's God doing the revealing. God is speaking to us and showing us who he is. This is very important because like our other relationships, we don't just get to decide who someone else is or they are what they are. For example, Zoe, my daughter, could say to her friends, hey, my dad, uh, he loves the outdoors. He loves to go camping. And actually, I, I like to think of a dad that is, you know, short. So he happens to be four feet tall. Uh, my dad was born in England. He owns a horse. He has armpits that smell like wildflowers in the spring. Now, she could say all of those things, but they wouldn't be true. None of them would be true. And we know that you can't just make up what someone else is like. What matters is who they actually are. And what we do today too often is it's become normal for us again to kind of construct this vision or version of God that we want to be true. Because again, we're Americans, we like choice, we're Westerners, we like choice, so we just want to choose, well, I like this God, or I want my God to be like this, and so we just kind of form this, this God that we want to be true, but we don't actually consider you know, who God actually is. It doesn't really matter what we want God to be like, what matters is what is God actually like. And the good news is that God tells us who he is, he reveals himself to us in these different ways that we've been talking about. Now, I know what you might be wondering. Like, okay, pastor, we've talked about God's glory being revealed in the heavens and the doctrine of general revelation. Okay, cool. And we've talked about God's word and his law being perfect and good and special. Okay, special revelation. Okay, uh, very cool. Great. What does this have to do with prayer? Because that's what this whole summer has been about, right? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the psalm actually closes with a word of prayer, a, a response to all that has been seen so far. So look at it in verse 12. It says, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults, and keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. So how does David respond to all that's been talked about so far in the psalm? First, with humility. Notice, you see what he says? In light of God's glory, in light of God's perfection, he realizes what? He needs forgiveness. Verse 12, forgive my hidden faults. Verse 13, keep me from willful sins. God, I'm aware that you are so big and so perfect that I'm immediately aware of my own imperfection. 
and my own sin. Both in, you notice he says, willful sins, like things that I, I know are wrong, but I do anyways. I need forgiveness for those things. And also for, for hidden faults. Verse 12, there, there are things in my heart, things that I do that are offensive to God, and, and I don't even realize it. It's interesting, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, you know what, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make him innocent. So my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. It doesn't make me innocent. In the same way, we could uh, not have any guilt or shame. Or we could not think that we're doing anything wrong, but we could actually be going against the Word of God. And so David here in Psalm 19 says, God, forgive me for the things that I, I may not even realize I need forgiveness for. God, I want to be innocent and pure before you in every way. And so he responds in humility and his great need for forgiveness. And he also responds, look, with devotion. Okay, verse 14. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful, actually, summary of the Christian life. God, I want my words, I want the meditation of my heart to be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I love that David here talks about the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness and the reality that God is his rock and his refuge and his redeemer. And sometimes what we want to do is we want to choose one of those. And either we, we err on the side, and we talk a lot about sin and shame and our need for forgiveness, but we don't ever talk about the grace and the mercy and the love of God. That's, that's a problem. Or we'll just talk so much about the grace and the love and the mercy of God that we don't even want to think about sin at all or acknowledge sin at all or say that sin is a big deal at all. And that's a problem. But here David acknowledges both. And we see in this prayer in verse 14 that we need to learn to move away from ourselves. You notice that? What does he say? He says, God, I want to be pleasing to you. I want my, my words and the attitude of my heart to please you. I want my heart to be aligned with you. Again, think about how Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. God, I want to be aligned with your heart and your ways. And so in light of your beauty and your glory and your goodness that we've talked about so far in this psalm, I want my, my, my words and my heart and my whole life to please you. That's what prayer is about, is learning to align our hearts with God's. Famous rapper Lecrae put it this way. He said, prayer isn't when we change God, but God changes us. So in prayer, God changes us. And it's not that we uh, cease to have desires it's not that we're like freed from all desires or needs or wants and we just have no, no concerns at all in the world. That's kind of what like a Buddhist philosophy or Eastern spirituality, just to cease desires. That's kind of the goal. That's, that's not what this is, but that our desires and our hearts uh, begin to be shaped and reordered and redirected and aligned with what God wants. So our heart starts to beat the way that God does, where we say, not my will, Lord, but yours, and our desires are aligned with his. And so friends, I would encourage you to try this week, 
using Psalm 19 as a guide for your prayer, especially verse 14. Even if you just wake up in the morning and you pray each morning simply, verse 14, God, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I go about my day today, Lord, may my words please you, the attitude of my heart please you, and recognize that he is your rock and your redeemer. Now, friends, there's one final connection we have to make with Psalm 19 here, okay? One more. And, and we haven't explored it yet. We've talked about general revelation. Okay, great. We've talked about special revelation, God making himself known. But the clearest and most significant example of special revelation is the person of Jesus. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Okay, through the scriptures, through the prophets, God's written word here. But, verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So God has made himself known in the world, not only through the created world and the heavens and all that we see around us, and not only in his word, his written word, his, his law, but also through his son, Jesus, who is the exact representation of his being, the ultimate revelation of God. We do not only have the written word of God to follow, but we have a person to follow, Jesus. And he alone can lead us to life. He alone can save us and reconcile us to God, which I realize is an exclusive claim that the Bible makes. And it may sound narrow to some, but this is what we need. We need a Savior, and Jesus is the only one. And think about this. Imagine that navigating life is like climbing Mount Everest. Okay, if you were to climb Mount Everest, which I um, will probably never do, you would want what? You would want a guide. You would want someone who knows where they're going, someone who can take you where you need to go. You would not go to base camp with your buddies and say, you know what, hey, we all have some different ideas about how to get to the top of this mountain. You know, in the West, that we're, uh, we're very egalitarian about equality, so we don't really trust authority or hierarchy too much, so we're good, and we're just going to kind of all like blind leading the blind, you know, figure this out. Well, we'll map it out as we go. I mean, why would I let someone else tell me how to get up the mountain? Would it be wise to do that? No, of course not. Instead, what would you do? You'd say, I want the best Sherpa around, and I am going to stay as close as I possibly can to that Sherpa, and I'm going to do everything that this Sherpa, this guy, tells me to do, because I haven't climbed this mountain before, and I need someone who knows what they're doing, someone who can lead me and guide me and lead me to life. I don't want to just muddle around with my friends here and hope that we figure it out. I need a guide who knows where they're going, who can take me where I need to go, and Jesus claims to be, friends, the way, the truth, and the life. It says, no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the only guide who can get you there. Follow me and you will have life. And so friends, that's our conviction as Christians. Jesus is the guide. Not only is he the way to God, he is God himself. 
come to us. And so we cling to Jesus and say, Jesus, we will follow you. We will live life your way. And friends, if we read this passage and we don't ultimately come to Jesus and look to Jesus, we could leave just with heavy hearts and set up for failure. Because what we'll do is we'll look at the first part of the psalm and say, wow, God is big and glorious and perfect, okay? And then God's law is good and his commands are good, but guess what? There's no way I can keep them. I know that I fail. I know that I sin. I know that I need forgiveness. So we have to look to Jesus then to remember the good news of the gospel that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And we are saved not by our own work, not by our own merit, not by our effort, but because of the merit and the effort and the work of Jesus that he's already completed. And so through simple faith, we trust in him and we are considered righteous and reconciled and forgiven. And he did this by taking our place and dying on a cross as our substitute. He took our punishment. He carried our sins and our shame, so that through faith we could be forgiven. And friends, we have an opportunity to remember this and celebrate this as a church family as we take communion. Uh, We celebrate in communion Jesus as our King, and we celebrate the goodness of the gospel. Communion is a chance for believers, for followers of Jesus, to take the elements and remember and celebrate their Savior. So I encourage you, if you follow Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, this time is now for you, for, for us. And what we're going to do, and again, in just a minute, is we're going to take uh, the bread and the cup. So grab those elements now, or, wherever you are. You can grab an element representing uh, the body of Jesus, a bread, a cracker, something like that, and a cup, something to drink that represents the blood of Jesus. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread And he broke it. And Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the bread with me? And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my, in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the cup with me? Would you pray with me, friends? Jesus, we uh, remember you today, together as, as a church family. We remember your broken body and your shed blood for us, for the forgiveness of sins. You are the Savior of the world. And Jesus, we want to cling to you. We want to follow you faithfully. So thank you for who you are. Thank you for all you've done. And we pray, Lord, that uh, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. God, would you go before us? Would you guide us? Would you teach us for your glory and our good and the good of your world? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.